This week on Writers, Inc. I don't sit down and think, let me write a thriller. I think, let me write a story that is first and foremost emotionally satisfying, but surprising. Like, I want to have both things as a reader myself. So I hope to give my readers what I hope to get from a book. But I, and I also hope that my books get readers to ask broader questions because I like that too. Like I, I want something, whether it's a piece of art or a book, or again, like a TV show or something, I want, I want to finish it and I want it to leave me thinking about the world and my own life and how those two things intersect. And I don't necessarily want my questions answered, but I, I want questions posed. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and indie powerhouses Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's Inc. If I don't mention this, I know it won't come up because I know how you guys are and I know how I am. <laughs> this is our 150th episode, dudes. Really? Oh, wow. <laughs> See, I knew it. You just didn't even know. <laughs> Why? Well, in fairness, I haven't been here for 150, so... Yeah, you've been here Dude. for a lot, though. But I've been here for quite a few, yeah. Yeah. That is true. Is there cake or alcohol or something? No, not, I really no. I mean, I, I think we just have to call it a landmark episode in memory of Chad Boyer, who isn't dead, but we'll just still say in memory of him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was about to freak out. I was like, what happened to Chad? You, you guys you guys didn't buy me something nice, like a little plaque to put up on my bookshelf? No, or? no, oh. I don't. I don't. I don't have anything for you. I'm sorry. All right. <laughs> Well, that's that's cool. Um, I mean, God, it feels like the hundredth episode was like fifty episodes ago. It just I know. flies by. I know, like fifty <laughs> weeks. You know, it's it, crazy. In all seriousness, like it's a pretty big accomplishment. I mean, I think the average podcast makes it to like seven episodes or something. Um, I mean, hitting one hundred and fifty. I mean, that's the point. You know, career author hit one hundred and fifty, and that's when we ran out of stuff to talk about. <laughs> so well, that's I, when I, we quit. So I mean, in, uh, in all honesty, I checked out probably seventy episodes ago. <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 around the time I came in. I think <laughs> Janie didn't even know what number the episode was, so of course he checked out. <laughs> what show is this again? <laughs> no, that's yeah. really cool though. That's that's awesome. It, so. it is cool. I mean, it's not like it's not like Joanna Penn level cool, but it's like yeah, one hundred and fifty uh, for a for a weekly podcast. I, that's uh. It's not easy to do, man. Like, it's easy to listen to these, and then, like, you hit one of these little milestones, and you're like, yeah, like, week in and week out, you got to show up. And uh, so, yeah, a little milestone, I guess. I don't think it's that easy to listen to this podcast. (laughs) Not anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Speaking of not easy, (laughs) awkward segue here. Are are either of you guys members of HWA? Yes. Or the Horror Writers Association? I am not. I've you thought about not. joining, but I'm not a member. Have you been getting a lot of spam lately, Jay? Yes. You have. So I, I got an email this morning, and it was the second one that I've received from from this particular company, but they're they're out there marketing the HWA email list. Yes. I don't know if you've, you've seen that yet. It's hitting um, my spam folder, Yeah, not surprisingly. 
Yeah, so somebody, um, HWA, from a security standpoint, like their list wasn't very well protected. If you were a member, you could go in there and literally download it as an Excel spreadsheet, which was yep. horrible. Um, I pulled mine out of there, but unfortunately not fast enough. Um, but yeah, so this company, I guess they downloaded it and they just decided, hey, why not? We're going to go ahead and sell it. So they're, they're out there doing oh. that. I, I don't know that anything can be done about it, you know, at this point, but um, it, it's, it's, it's happening. It's unfortunate because... Now, uh, anything I see coming with the from the HWA or in the subject line, I'm almost auto deleting it right at, at this moment because I'm like, this is just going to be more spam. Yeah, I'm just I'm you know I'm a little concerned that it happened in the first place, and you know like it's it's difficult enough for these organizations to hold everything together, and like something like this could really cause a, a mass exodus. Um, you know, there there could even be legal issues involved. I, I don't you know who knows. I mean, like I, I, I the, the fact that I'm getting spam and I know it's related to that 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 really really bothers me, especially for a problem that they could have fixed a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, it's unfortunate. I didn't even realize it was that's what had happened. I just noticed an uptick in promotional emails. Mentioning the HWA, I'll, I'll say this: you guys aren't encouraging me to join. <laughs> so I was thinking about you're like, oh, I, I was like, oh, that's something I've been meaning to do. And you asked for members. Now I'm like, well, maybe I shouldn't join. <laughs> at, at least wait until they start using Mailchimp or something to, yeah. to maintain it. So what else is going on? I'm home alone. Um, my my wife and daughter took off to Pittsburgh. Um, so we, we've been doing a ton of traveling. So I went to Pittsburgh then I came back and we hopped say, in the you car. You were just there, right? Yeah, I was just there. Literally came back half hour later. We hopped in the car. We went up to Maine for, for about three, four days or so. Um, then we came back and then they left on Monday. Um, and I was joking with my wife cause it's, it's funny. Like the first time we took our daughter to the airport, we literally lost her at the security line. Um, like she was, I think about one and a half or so she had just started walking. And like when you travel with an infant that size, you've got a ton of stuff. Like when I go somewhere, I've got a duffel bag. That's it. You know, I've got my, 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 one bag over my shoulder and, and that's it. But like when I travel with my daughter, we've got a, a car seat, we've got this, we've got this, this bag, that bag, her bag, you know, my wife's bags, all, all this stuff. Um, and I remember we, we got through the security line and we brought the baby seat through and we set our daughter down in the baby seat. And then I had to go back through the line to get some more of the bags and, and kind of put them through, um, fully expecting our, our one and a half year old to sit in her, her car seat, you know, you know, like while we were doing all this, which was really stupid on our part because she had no intention of doing that. Um, so I went, went back, got the other bags. My wife was putting her shoes back on, like turned her back for like literally a second. When we both looked back, the car seat was still there. No baby. Yeah. She, she had wandered off and somehow she had made it all the way to the back of the security line again. That's where we found her. So we had to go back and get her. Uh, but my, my wife sent me a video of this, this latest trip. And like my, my daughter is taking off her shoes. She's putting her bags up on the security line, you know, like she's doing all the, all the steps that us adults have to, to hop through. So I don't know. It just made me feel like she's growing up way too fast. You know, the fact that, that she was actually able to do it and, and that she had to do it you know like it's i still remember when we could fly with you know literally anything you got to the airport three minutes before your plane took off and you could still get on it and there was no security um which i i kind of miss but anyway so i'm home alone i'm watching a ton of tv and i was listening to joanna penn and she mentioned anatomy of a scandal um so i decided to go ahead and give this a try have either of you guys watched this yet it's in my queue, but I haven't watched it. Haven't oh watched man, I'm, I'm not going to give away any spoilers, but it's you know, David E. Kelly is one of the writers on it. Um, it, it is phenomenal. I mean, some of the best writing that I've seen in a very long time. Um, just that there's one scene with a defense attorney's cross examination that is just incredible. I mean, the writing is, is is strong, but like just the the acting involved in order to pull it off and um, just fantastic. So if you get a chance, definitely get out there and watch that. Um, JD sounds like me when I was like 17 and. Or even in my twenties, and like I had the house myself. Just watch TV. You're ordering pizza. <laughs> <laughs> 
all kinds of stuff. Feet up oh, on the coffee table. There, there, there's stuff on the kitchen counter. It's it's completely out of hand. Yeah, it's just it's just <laughs> chaos. <laughs> That's pretty much it. And aside from that, I'm just I'm just working. What are you guys doing? Zach, you uh you were at a show. Yeah, the most interesting thing that's happened to me in the last week, I guess, is I went to uh I went to see Red Hot Chili Peppers, uh, who JD didn't even know still existed. Said <laughs> he doesn't we even know here. we're on a podcast, so don't take it personally. I, I honestly, like, I saw those guys back in the day, and I don't get how they're still alive. You know, like, yeah, that's what, we were kind of talking about that off air, like, and I was telling the people I went with, like, how lucky we were to see that lineup, like, because that's really, I mean, that's the the you know the lineup that's touring is like the classic lineup of of that band that you know went through the 90s and early 2000s who wrote all their hits and everything and um like the fact that, that John Frusciante and Anthony Kiedis aren't both dead is just a freaking miracle but um it was insane man it was I, I'd never seen him unfortunately like I wish I'd I know Jay you told me you saw him at like Lollapalooza 92 which would have been incredible yeah that um, was amazing but uh but you know, better late than never. And and I'm at a point where there's so many bands who I've put off scene, and I'm like, I'll see, you know, especially when you live in Nashville, it's really easy to be like, oh, I'll just see them next time they come to town. And I did that with Foo Fighters, and like now I pro- I don't even know if the Foo Fighters are still going to be a band. And I you know, um, I never saw Pantera. Like there's a bunch of bands I've never seen that you know I don't have the chance to now. So I was like, I'm gonna definitely go to this concert, and. Um, I mean, it was crazy because, and Jay was even kind of surprised about this, but they played at the football stadium here and which seats like 70,000 people. And it was, I mean, they had part of the, you know, behind the stage and stuff was obviously no seats, but the rest of the place was packed. I mean, there had to be, I don't know, 40,000 people or something there. I would assume. I mean, it was a big, big crowd and it was, uh, but they were, they were absolutely incredible, especially, um, you know, we were saying about how long they've been around. I mean, I think they've been a band for 38 years, which when you think about it, again, most of their hits came in the 90s, but they were rocking in the 80s. And I was telling Jay beforehand, you know, like, uh, you know, Flea was in Back to the Back to the Future movies, which <laughs> just feels like that's ages ago. You know, like, and it, I mean, it, it was in a lot of ways. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, it was an incredible concert and definitely one of the uh, the probably my top five shows I've been to, and I've probably been to, I don't know, 150 concerts or something like that. Now that, that one definitely ranks up there really high. That was awesome. Nice. Nice. I, uh, I, I w- was working on some things this week that I can't, I can't really talk about, but I had a, a big divot taken out of my work week. Uh, thanks to Paul Tremblay jerk. Um, he had to go and write this <laughs> what, amazing book. <laughs> no, he didn't do anything to my foot. He, uh, <laughs> He wrote a book called Paul Bearer's Club and mm. absolutely loved it. I tore through it. I was racing to the end. I can't even talk about it. Um, it's so innovative. Um, if I talk about any any aspect of it, it's going to spoil things. Um, but I just confirmed with him this morning, we're going to have him back on the podcast later this fall, and we'll definitely talk about it. But nice. if you're looking for a really unique... Um, I, I don't even know if I could... I can't even I can't even talk about the genre. It'll spoil it. I, just trust me. If um, you'll love the book, uh, Paul Bear's Club, Paul Tremblay. Paul's always a lot of fun. I, I actually um, I'm listening to the audiobook right now um, for Riley Sager's latest House on the Lake. Um, and yesterday I hit the twist. Um, like literally, uh, I, I was listening to the book while I was on my run, and I got home and like I hit the twist like as I hit the back door of the house, and I I stood outside for like another ten or fifteen minutes just listening to more because there there was just no way I could put it down at that point because um, it, it's crazy and I'm not going to go to you know discuss it in any way, but yeah, it, it's it's definitely worth the read. 
I guess I should say what I'm reading too, because I am also reading a book from a Writers Inc. alumni guest. Um, I'm reading The Hunger by Almakatsu right now. Nice, um, and it's it's really really good. So yeah, uh, I'm I'm very much enjoying that. And I have uh, a Riley Sager is is coming up on my my list too. You know, got it. Got to get through that never ending to be read list. So. <laughs> well, cool. Uh, let's take care of some business, and then we'll get to the guests for the week. Uh, let's uh, give a wonderful shout out to our friends over there at Kobo Reading Life who empower you, the author, to take your self-publishing career into your own hands. Remember, you get to set your price. You keep all of your rights. There's always monthly promotional opportunities and never with any exclusivity. So uh, use the link in the show notes or you can head on over there directly at KoboWritingLife.com. JD, who's our guest this week? This week, we've got Kimberly McCrate. Uh, she's a New York Times bestselling author of a, a fantastic book called Reconstructing Amelia, um, which, you know, as a writer, you want to check this one out because the point of view on, on that particular novel is, is very unique. Um, I liked it quite a bit. Uh, it was nominated for an Edgar Award, Anthony Award, Alex Award, a lot, a lot of different things. Um, her latest novel is called Friends Like These, and it just released on August 16th. So here she is, Kimberly McCrate. Uh, is it harder to run 10 miles or to bike 40? Um, they're both hard. Uh, you know what's the hardest is to run the 10 miles after biking the 40. <laughs> I will tell you that that for sure. Uh, you know, I think it's actually harder for me to bike the, um, you know, I, I guess I'm doing this Ironman race in um, October and I just got a trainer and he actually increased the biking to 60. Um, apparently I was not biking enough. Um, and uh, it's, yeah, I'm not a good biker. I'm really not good at any of the things. <laughs> it's the problem. I'm really not. It's like such a true, people say this, they're like, oh, like they humble brag. They're like, I'm slow. Like, no, it's really a hobby. Like I'm really not good at it, but it it just, it, it shares a lot in common with writing. And I really like how it gets me out of my head and it, it you create, this goal that, you know, it's in the distance. It, it really works in tandem. I think that's true for a number of writers. Um, they're long distance runners. It's a common, I think, thing to do. But, um, and I also love that it's the one thing I can like quit at any moment. <laughs> I'm like, you know, this gets to be too much. I just, I'll just stop, you know, like you can't do that. Like with your kids <laughs> like when you have a book contract, but I can say, I'm not going to do this ridiculous thing I signed up for. So um, yeah, they're both hard though. Yeah. Well, I'm a long distance runner. Uh, oh. and, and so I could totally relate. I, when you're talking about parallels to writing, I'm like, I totally get it. Uh, what, what's the furthest you've run in, in one session or at one time? Uh, the marathon. I, I've done the yeah. marathon three times. So oh, wow. um, okay. the New York, the New York marathon. Um, so that's definitely the longest. I didn't like run extra. <laughs> I stopped. <laughs> and to be clear, the last time I did it, it like didn't, it didn't really go well. So um, I'm a little like everyone's mom. Like, wait, so I'm going to do that on top of the other thing. <laughs> I just try not to think about it. Cause I mean the whole, and that, again, it's just like writing a book, as you know, like you start out and you're like, this is not actually possible. And then you learn through writing a book that actually, if you just focus on the moment in front of you, you'd be surprised what's possible. And so it's the same principle um, with this. I'm like, that doesn't sound feasible <laughs> at all, but I'm going to do the things the trainers say, and then we'll see. I'll do the best I can. Yeah, it's it's like being at chapter six or chapter seven, and you're like, "There's no way I'm getting to chapter twenty-three." And when you're running, there's like you're you're at mile six or seven is your best, and you're like, "There's no way I can run three times as many of these." And right, yet you do, you do, and I think with like writing, it's because it changes over time, right? Like yeah. when you you know people who sit down to write something for the first time, they open it up and they're like, 
well, if I can't write this one page, how am I going to experience this feeling every day for 400 pages? But the reality is it's not like that on page X or Y or later, like it changes um, for better and worse. <laughs> there are moments that are worse than the first page, but um, it actually shifts. And um, again, you just, this thing happens that you'd be surprised happens, you know, yeah. that you're able to, to sustain. Yeah, for sure. Uh, best of luck with that. That's, uh, that's, that's quite, that's gonna be quite an October for you. Yeah, it is. It is for sure. <laughs> well, uh, friends like these just came out in hardback and, uh, you kept me up many nights in a row because I could not put this thing down. I absolutely loved it. Um, this is a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal thriller. Um, detective Julia Scott might be my favorite character. Uh, can you talk a little bit about her? Yeah, she's very uh, she's very lovable too. Uh, I, I I do I do love her. Um, so she, yeah, she um, is a local uh, detective in uh, Catterskill, which is a town in upstate New York, where this kind of group of hipster friends from uh, New York head upstate for the weekend. And um, but she's got kind of this own her own troubled history. She's grappling with the murder of her sister when she was young, and. Um, unsolved murder of her sister so she's she's dealing with that and and you kind of see some of it play out in her relationship she has you know somebody another detective she's broken up with recently and um she really has this kind of hard exterior but it's covering up a lot of like pain and um things she's trying to work through so she uh but ultimately you know is also a very very good detective so she uh digs in to solve the case and um, half the book is framed around her point of view, and ultimately, you see a intersection between her story and the story of the friends. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it, it's hard to talk about the plot yeah. of this without spoiling anything. We're not going to do that, but uh, the interrogation scene at the end, and and, and the detective's like, "Yeah, I think you are going to need a, a lawyer," is just <laughs> spot on. Like it was just, <laughs> it all came together so so perfectly. Uh, uh, no, if I if I have my my research correct, you graduated from Vassar, is that right? I did graduate from Vassar, yes. Yeah. So is was that um, how, how did that come into the 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 planning or the writing of of the story? Yeah. So it um the the initial inspiration for the book uh, a very I had a group of friends at Vassar um, who I said. I was on Good Morning America because it was a buzz pick. And I was like, they did not murder anybody, which they did not. Um, they always were. They're like, it's it's so funny how non-fluce they are about the whole thing. So they're like, but just make sure people know we didn't murder anybody. Okay. Um, so uh, that, um, so that, that I would say the initial spark definitely came from that group of friends for me, which was really a group of friends that was more like family. Uh, it was really the, I kind of come from a bit of a troubled family background. And so it was the first um, family I had. And um, it's, it's just really fascinating because it's a really type of group of friends at the same time isn't family, right? Because you don't know everything that happened. You don't know their history in that same way. You kind of appear, particularly at college at this moment where you're trying to figure out who you are, and you're put together and then together you're figuring out who you are. And it's this really dynamic, wonderful, but also kind of strangely like an echo chamber, right? Like you, you then take on certain roles. Like a group of friends is such an incredibly dynamic uh, thing and you become defined by it, then you in turn define it. Um, and so that those friends are still my closest friends and they're still my family. Um, so they're the people I call and you know, like things kind of fall apart. So 
uh, I always wanted to write about them. Um, and which if you read friends like these, you're gonna be like, is this her love letter to them? Cause it really doesn't seem like a love letter. Um, but it is in my own way. And so anyway, one of those friends from Vassar owns a uh, weekend house at the time it was now she's living there full time, but it was her weekend house, uh, in upstate New York. And I went there for the weekend and, um, really noticed this dichotomy between, the weekenders, which was like her and, and this, you know, she hosted this party the weekend I was there and invited all these people from the city, these like magazine types and fashion types. And, um, but also the contrast between that and, and some of the locals or some of the realities of the socioeconomics in town, which aren't like the Hamptons, uh, you know, like where there's there. And I think there is even that side in the Hamptons, but like, there's not quite as consistently as much money necessarily. There's a bigger split. And, uh, Anyway, the house is her house. Um, and actually, it's funny because when I wrote the book, I hadn't been there in a while. And then I went back and I was like, oh, I got all these things right <laughs> just from my my memory. Um, and so the house is her house. It was sparked by that weekend um, and then combined with this idea that I really wanted to write about my group of friends somehow. And the complexity of that, like this, this loyalty is such a beautiful thing, um, but it does have this kind of dark, complicated side. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the bookstore label is, cl is clearly domestic thriller. Uh, how would you define that, that subgenre of the thriller? Yeah, I don't see this as a domestic thriller. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what it is. I, I find those um, labels, first of all, when I wrote my first book, Reconstructing Amelia, I didn't even realize it was a mystery or a thriller or whatever. Um, and that really, I was nominated for an Edgar Award. Um, and I will never forget my agent at the time. I didn't win. Spoiler. I didn't win. Um, but uh, when I didn't win, she turned to me and she said, that's OK. We didn't think it was a mystery anyway. <laughs> um, so I think that, you know, the, I don't know what that means. Um, certainly, I don't know what the subgenre means. Like I've seen discussions and I've been asked. And actually, I did a, a, an interview with Sarah of Sarah's Bookshelves all about like, what is a uh, what's a mystery? What's a thriller? What's suspense? And I actually had to contact my editor and my agent. I'm like, I saw the questions before and I was like, what, and they were like, I don't know, I think, and these are people who like spent a lot of time working on these books. Um, but, uh, you know, I think a thriller is faster paced. Um, and so I don't know, Do, a domestic suspense, domestic implies to me family, like, like really husband, wife. Um, and so that's why I, you say domestic and I'm like, well, there's no, there's no kind of, it's not centered around a, a like a nuclear family. Um, so it, I don't know. Um, you know, I don't, first of all, I don't care. I'm happy for it to be called whatever. Um, uh, although as long, as long as that doesn't turn some readers away, you know, I just, I feel like it's a, um, it's a character driven novel that is definitely also, um, suspenseful, you know, like yeah. that's, I, I, that's what I feel like it is. And I feel like to the extent that labels are helpful for other people or bookstores or librarians, that's great. You know? So it sounds like you're not, necessarily writing to a specific genre or subgenre you're just kind of writing the story you want to tell i could not write to no yeah. i couldn't if i tried i wish i could that would probably <laughs> be effective um no i i no i can't i can't even yeah no i i don't um i don't do that at all i think in a 
an enormous amount about my readers and their emotional satisfaction in the story I am telling. Meaning like, I don't want to make it sound like, no, I am an artist. I do what I think is right. I mean, I, I think to me, a book is a dialogue between you and a reader and you're trying to communicate emotion and, and all of that through a story, right? Um, so I think a lot about like, how is this going to feel to to this reader who's maybe attached to this person in this way if this thing happened? And, and maybe I want them to feel upset or sad or whatever, because that's part of this emotional journey in the book. But I, like, I never want to betray the reader. I don't want to trick them, which is why I try really hard to have the endings of my book be something that would be very difficult to figure out, but you could have known. You know, like, it's not like you should have known, but you could have known. Like, I always try to make sure I put enough things in there that, really, if you go back and look like you missed it, you know? Um, so, because I think there's nothing for me as a consumer of either books or, or TV shows or whatever. Um, when I get to the end and I'm like, like, there's no human way you could have known that you just pulled a character out. That's not a twist. It's not a twist when it's something you, you didn't clue me in on. Um, so I feel like, you know, you should always have a handful of people that guessed it first, just a handful. Um, cause then you know that, that it was there. Um, but uh, yeah, so so um, yeah, that that's basically what I'm trying, what I what I hope to do, and what I try to do. But I don't I don't sit down and think, let me write a thriller. I think let me let me write a story that is first and foremost emotionally satisfying, but surprising. Like I I want to um, I want to have both things um, as a reader myself. So I hope to give reader my readers what I hope to get from a book. Mm. But I, and I also hope that my books uh, get readers to ask broader questions because I like that too. Like I, I want something, whether it's a piece of art or a book, or again, like a TV show or something, I want to I finish it and I want it to leave me thinking about the world and my own life and how those two things intersect. And I don't necessarily want my questions answered, but I, I want questions posed to me that I then have to reflect on. So I always hope my books are also doing that. Mm. Do you have uh, a specific system or process for kind of getting inside your reader's heads or finding out what, what they're going to like versus what they don't? Yeah. I mean, that's, um, when I thought you were going to say, do you have a system for writing? And I was going to be like, there's no system. (laughs) Um, but I'm sure we'll talk about that later, but, um, you know, I, I, um, it, it is readers. You need readers, right? So you need two different types of readers. You need obviously readers that are going to continue. So at, and at different times, right? Like who are doing different things. So I employ different kinds of readers at different stages. Um, and there's certainly, I would say my readers are most evoked. I like beta readers um, who generally aren't writers, although, you know, they tend to be creative types are certainly big readers, but not writers. And I try to rely on them when I feel like the book is not about to go off to copy edits, but I've edited it with my editor and my agent and and other writer friends have weighed in um, who really can kind of give me writerly notes. Um, And then I, I rely on, you know, friends I went to law school with um, you know, that kind of thing, friends from college, uh, who can just read it as a reader would um, and that kind of fit in my target audience. And inevitably I come back with a ton of notes from them um, that are more kind of like how somebody really on the outside who isn't looking at the structure, who isn't looking at it from a craft point of view is just going to read it. Um, so, but the key is to, to time those readers 
to a place where the book is really, as far as I know, finished. Um, and then, you know, get their feedback. How do you, uh, how do you take a, a story from idea to, you know, final draft? Mostly t- caffeine and terror. <laughs> mostly, mostly how I do it. Um, I, uh, yeah, I don't outline in advance, um, which given the complexity of my books and the multiple points of view and the interstitial elements, et cetera, is a lot of people find surprising. It's not surprising to not outline. I feel like people are either pantsers, right? You know, fly by the seat of your pants or they're outliners. And, um, that's just kind of the way it is. Uh, and so, yeah, so I'm definitely a pantser. Um, and I do feel like you're one or the other and you can't really change the way your brain works, um, for better or worse. Um, and it means that I figure my, st- I, I, you know, I have certain things figured out. I always have to figure out who are my point of view characters and what will be their point of view and what in general is, what are the thematic stories I'm trying to tell broadly? I mean, I'm trying to tell the story about, about motherhood and the complexity of your own history with your daughter. Like that's my new book, you know, or something like that. Um, so like, I mean that broadly, uh, and then I have a sense of the spine, meaning it's, you know, I'm going to go from, you know, my first, in my new book, the, the book opens with the mother, um, missing. Um, and so the, the story that obviously we're going to find out where'd she go. Right. So, so I, like, I know those basic things. Um, but then I basically start to write. And I know I will use interstitial elements of some kind because I always do because because I if I narrate it I, I tend to narrate um, the books from uh, and actually friends like these is a bit of an exception although the friends kind of work collectively as the 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 person who's gone usually there's like a person who's gone that's a point of view character or either dead you already know is dead or missing or. Um, something like in a good marriage, Amanda is one of the point of view characters and you know, she's dead and reconstructing Amelia, you know, that, that um, Amelia is from the, almost from the outset of the book. So, and then the other point of view is kind of figuring out what happened. And that can be um, in the case of friends like these, that's a detective. Um, it can be uh, and reconstructing Amelia. It's a mother in my new forthcoming book. It is um, a daughter, right? So um, I kind of figure those things out and then I just start to write and it is really an excavation process. I would say that the first draft, I just try to get through the first draft. Um, and usually about, as you talked about, like about, you know, somewhere three quarters away and I'm like in the weeds and I'm like, I have like no idea what's going on here. I'm like, please God, just let me like see land on the other side. And so, and again, it helps that I know like, okay, so like, where is the mom? Like what happened? Like, I, I know I need to land you there. So if I can, you know, usually I get lost in the middle and I'm like, I know that's where we have to get. Um, and, but through this process and what is so fascinating to me personally, not necessarily to anybody else, but that I'm like such a, uh, insane control freak in like every aspect of my life. But this is such a wild process. Um, so it's an interesting place for me to live, <laughs> so much of my time in because uh, I kind of have no idea what's going on and I really focus on whatever it is. And again, this is in the first draft, um, whatever it is that's in front of me. And then when I'm like, okay, so let me, then I have a draft and I'm like, well, what was I trying to do? What story was I trying to tell? And then it becomes a process of many, many, many revisions. Um, my agent now, uh, Doreen Karshmar is at WME, 
uh, calls it a layering process, um, is what I'm doing, which is true. So I try first to get the tracks of the story down. And then I, I basically, my books are, I hope, a combination of that plot, but character and theme, right? So the theme being the broader notions of like motherhood and history and the impact of that. And uh, so I basically then go through drafts. I got to perfect the plot first. And then I layer the other things on top through a series of revisions, which is probably about 10 or 11 times going through the book. And I don't mean, it's funny because my editor has said this, like I revise more than, way more than the average writer. So it's almost like I'm, I'm like massaging it into shape. It's not, it's, it's part writing, it's part revision. Um, but, uh, and so I can, I know it's like scary when you first start to work with me because it's like, oh, this, this isn't good. This thing she just gave me. And I'm like, no, no, but like, I'm going to fix it. And a lot of people, writers, when they say that they don't really, they mean it, but just in a different way. And I'm like, no, no, like literally I'm going to rewrite like every single word on the page. Like, so just like get, you know, take that. What I just did is like an idea of what I'm going to do. Mm. Um, so that's my process. And, you know, in the end, I think whether or not you're an outliner or you do it this way, it's just where your work is. You know, you're, if you outline, it's front loaded. Uh, you know, you do it at the beginning and then you have less, you still have revision, but less on the back end. And if you do it this way, your process is mostly in revision. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't think one is, is better or worse. Um, and I don't really think you have much of a choice. Mm. Uh, I think especially for first drafting, but maybe revision as well. Do you have a particular time or place where you like to do it? Uh, yeah, no, I, I always work at the Brooklyn Writers Space and I always work regular work hours and I work a lot of hours. Um, so uh, like usually 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. Five days a week, if I'm lucky, usually at six and sometimes at seven, four months on end. Wow. <laughs> yeah, uh, so it's not, I, I, it takes me, like I, I'm not on as the schedule a lot of other people uh, are in you know kind of a commercial space, but um, I you know can kind of come out with one book every two years. Um, but for me to do that, I have to work uh, almost nonstop. Mm. Well, and, and you're you're not just writing books either. I know that you're you're uh, saying earlier um, before we came on that you have some adaptations you're working on. You want to talk a little bit about those too? Yeah, so I'm working on the adaptation of Friends Like These, um, which is actually interesting because it's the first time I've, have to, I've had to outline something because um, that's just simply a part of that process because you're obviously working with a team and a group and a, you can't be like, just get in my head. It's all sorted out. In there. <laughs> don't worry. They're not as amused <laughs> by the whole like, don't worry, I'll fix it. <laughs> don't worry, I'll fix it. Um, so uh, yeah, so I am doing that literally right now as we speak. So I have uh, my new book, uh, which is called like Mother Like Daughter. Um, and that is uh, due to do soon, um, but in the beginning of September. And I am right now um, working on the, you know, outlining the pilot for, um, for friends like these. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. What's, uh, what's after, what's the next step after the outline for that? Uh, then you generally write the pilot itself. Okay. Um, so, but it has been just so fun. I have to say it gives you um, a new chance with the material. And because I am such a reviser, um, I'm like, great. Like we can just do it again. I can do it forever. I could, which is why eventually sometimes be like, just stop stop doing that. Um, but you're like, oh, I made these choices. Like what new choices 
could I make now? And because you know the characters so well, and I, so many people, so many screenwriters do so, such amazing jobs at adaptations, but I don't know how they do it. It's amazing to me that they can when the characters aren't theirs and they don't know the story that intimately because I'm just so grateful that it is my book and I don't have to go back and look at it. When I think about getting rid of things and I think about, I'm like, well, that's not a retaining wall. Like we can get rid of that and we can get rid of this because I know what it was doing. Um, and I think about other people coming in and they do it again, definitely. Um, there's other screenwriters working on my other books to do adaptations and they are doing a wonderful job. But I, I'm like, I don't understand how you do that because I, I know just intuitively one, what the characters would do uh, given different circumstances. And I also know uh, what can be gotten rid of and converted and whatever, because I know it's not essential because uh, to, the, to the mechanics of the mystery, because ultimately like these are, my books function a little bit like machines uh, inside of them. Uh, and like you do, like it, it will go off the tracks. If you don't, like certain things do have to, there, there is a lot of intricate construction in the middle. Um, so, uh, yeah, but it's been, uh, it's been great so far. I'm thrilled to get the opportunity. Excellent. Excellent. Um, we can pull the conversation to a close with, uh, an open-ended question, whether it's in your own career, the publishing industry, um, what are you really excited about these days? Um, I'm, you know, I have to say I'm really, I am really excited about working on the adaptation. That's been a really fun, uh, new creative experience. And it's really, really fun to work with other people. Um, you know, you, as a novelist, you spend, you know, I, I do at the end, get to work with my, at the end, because it's not the end for her, but with my editor and my agent, but I've been in that world a long time by myself. And, uh, it, which is why it's so fun when a book comes out and when you do finally get to start working with your editor, like that's the fun part because you're like, oh, now we're all in this world together. You know, like it is, it is strange to create an entire universe where those people are, you're living with them every single day for months on end by yourself. Um, so it is, it is nice. I have like a partner I'm working with um, on the screenplay and like that collaborative part is nice. Um, you know, but I do, I always love a new book too. I mean, so, because there's, it's just like a magic to when you, and, and as you get later, like I'm farther in the process now, like then it becomes the fun part because the draft is done and you get to start making connections, which are um, exciting. And, and uh, there's a magic to that as well. JD, as a fellow runner, I'm going to kick it to you first. Uh, did you feel like a bit of a slouch listening to that interview? I, I felt like I had to go and take like three Advil after listening to that interview. <laughs> I, I just, I can't imagine riding a bike that far on purpose, um, following it up with a, a run, you know, like all those different things. Like, yeah, I, I, it's, it's tough, but I mean, it's, I think you need to do it. Like when you sit behind a desk all day, if you can pull that off too, you know, kudos for sure. She's a beast, man. That's crazy. Yeah. That's yeah, tough. I was I was impressed that you told her, you know, like, oh, you were bragging about how you're a long distance runner too. How many miles did you run this morning, Jay? Uh, let's just say I didn't run a marathon. <laughs> <laughs> Is it easier to ride a bike or run on a broken foot? Tell me. Hey, uh, I'll have you know, we're not going to hijack Kim's uh, uh, limelight here, but I'll have you know that I got the green light to start running again um, today. So uh, I'm going to be back in the game soon. It won't, it won't be, uh, I won't be chasing Kimberly on, on the Ironman track, but uh, I'm yeah, going to be back in the game. And don't run in the ocean. Okay. But... No, that was actually no, that was actually really impressive. I mean, I uh, I've all even when I was like really really fit, I always hated running. So I can't imagine running a marathon. But I love bike riding. Like, 
But the the farthest I've ever ridden on a bike was I think I did 32 miles in one ride one time. And so and I definitely didn't go run after. So, uh, yeah, major, major kudos to her for that. So that's really impressive. I, I've never gone like the last time I actually rode a bike was probably when I was 15 because I wasn't allowed to drive a car yet. Um, <laughs> like I, we, we've got an exercise bike in the gym, but that that's pretty much it. Like I haven't ever tried like the long distance riding thing. My, my brother-in-law does that quite a bit. He visited us and stayed with us for a little while and he actually bought a, a you know, a bike for, for doing that kind of thing. And he would do like 20 miles at a pop. Um, but yeah, I just thought <laughs> last time Judy rode a bike, it had some sweet pegs on it. It, it did, man. <laughs> I'll be. <laughs> he, had, he had a baseball card attached to the tire to make it sound like a motorcycle. Oh, man. 150 episodes, right? <laughs> time, time to pull a pin. <laughs> no, you all know, right. in all seriousness, so, like the, uh, the, the running, the cycling, the exercising, I love how, how she tied that to writing. Like it's a very parallel process, right? Like it can be overwhelming if you're sitting there at the beginning of a manuscript thinking, I got to crank out 90 chapters. Like, there's no way I can do this. But you just look a little bit ahead. Like, you don't look to the finish line. You just look to, like, the next mile marker. And, and uh, I thought that was a, a really nice perspective to have on it. Yeah. I mean, the thing with running and with biking like that, and it totally applies to a novel, is, yes, there's a physical aspect to it, but it's really mental. <laughs> I mean, I mean, running far, I mean, you, I know, Jay, you've, you know, or both you guys are, are avid runners, like, it really, you have so much time just to be in your head and, and there that's, it is a great parallel to, to a novel because when you're staring at that blank page, um, you know, like when you first start a book, usually I would say is not, I don't know, you're like excited and stuff. And it's kind of like when you go on a run, you're like, Oh, I'm, you get started and stuff, but it can get really challenging and to, you know, sit down and have to, it, it really is a mental game. It, it's, it's really, it, that is a really interesting parallel. I'd never really thought about. She brought up um, something really cool. I like that she went to her editor and nobody could really tell her the difference between a mystery thriller or, or a suspense novel. I was going to bring that up too. Yeah, and, and that is that is so true. I mean, you can go to your editor, you can ask your agent, you can walk into a bookstore, you're, you're going to get a different answer every every single time. Um, and, and there's so many labels that, you know, like nobody seems to be able to decide on what the current labels mean and they're out there creating new labels every day uh, and, and throwing you know people in, in more boxes. So I've never been able to figure that one out. Um, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, the other thing that she brought up, uh, that I think a lot of debut authors don't tend to think about, but make sure that your ending in your book is is actually possible. You know, like I, I read so many debut novels and, you know, like they'll, they'll introduce a character like in the beginning of the book, first 20 or 30 pages, that character vanishes for like the entire, you know, next 90% of the book. And then that turns out to be their bad guy. You know, like they just, they bring them back in at the last minute. They feel that that's, oh, that's a cliffhanger because nobody saw that coming. Like it's that, that's just silly. Um, like your, your ending should always be, you know, it needs to be possible, you know, not, um, it, but it should also be difficult to land on, but it should be one of those things that where you close the book or you hit that, that final twist, you know, you, you look back on everything that you learned and realize all the the puzzle pieces were there. You know, you just, you know, may or may not have put them together. Um, like that, that's the ideal ending, um, to, to really research that if, you know, as an author, or go back and read Agatha Christie. Um, she she was phenomenal at it. Every every one of her books, you know, she'll keep you going and guessing all the way to the, the very end, and then you get that ending from her, and it's you know it's always this big aha moment. But when you look back at the breadcrumbs, they're they're always there. Well, I think too, and I, I think what I'm about to say might speak more to the indie authors out there than traditional. But like, I think that is another reason why 
it's so important, like at, at working with the right editor and specifically having like developmental edits. I, Jay can probably speak to this some. Um, you know, that that's a really good point. While why like just doing line edits and stuff sometimes isn't enough because you're so close to your story and like a really good editor will catch things like that and be like, wait a minute, like this this plot doesn't make like what you did here doesn't make sense and is not possible. Yeah, and she brought up something else that kind of ties to it. Her beta readers are, are readers; they're not writers, yeah. um, and that that's really important too. I, le- I learned that one early on because when you go to writers and ask them to read your book and critique your book, they tend to dig into it on a very different level than a than a reader actually does. Um, they give you a lot of feedback that may or may not be necessary. Um, a lot of times they'll steer you in the wrong direction. You know, ultimately, you're not selling your book to writers; you're selling it to readers. So those are the people that you really want as as beta readers, and you want their honest feedback. You know, are, are they able to put those clues? together does the indie make sense to them as a reader um you know most writers and, and editors too you know they, they read so much material that you know in a lot of ways they get jaded they've seen every plot line before um you know so it's very difficult to fool them um you know those kind of things also play play a part in in you know the, their thoughts and the, the feedback that they give you so yeah fo- focus on readers yeah something uh, i didn't realize until i looked at our production schedule is that we have you know we had riley last week um uh, writing, writing sort of a story in a vacation house, and and friends like these is very much like that. And uh, I, I, you know, on the surface, it seems like it would be easier to have a small cast in a very tight location. I think it's the opposite. Like I think it's really hard to pull that off well because there's only so many places you can go, only so many combinations of conflict you can create. And uh, and and Kimberly's book was was excellent too. She she just really nailed it. A really interesting example of that. I was another one. I was talking to somebody about this book the other day, um, "The Long Walk" by Stephen King. Um, that book always blows my mind because the whole book is just these kids walking, <laughs> and 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 there's obviously stuff happening, but you know the conversations are just between these kids, and they're literally walking the whole time. And that so like similar thing, you know, that can be really difficult to have, especially a novel. A short story is one thing. You know, but to have a novel where you have that tight of a saying and cast it is challenging in its own way for sure. Yeah, I mean, and not to harp on Riley, but he's he's very very good at, at doing that sort of thing. Um, what was the last one that he wrote with, with the two people in the car? That was survive the night. Yeah, so you literally have two people in a car, you, you know, but and you're still not sure who did it. You know, it's like he's, he's that he's that good. Um, and the, the latest one is the same thing. You know, it's one of the things like I, I've actually worked on real murder investigations before. And, and the, the weird thing is, like when you're used to reading about this kind of thing is, you know, your killer is always somewhere in the pages of that book. Um, and in real life, a lot of times that particular name or person, you know, never comes up. They're never you know, a blip on the, the police radar. Um, but, you know, as, as an author or a reader, when you're reading a book, you know that they're one of the names. So, like, you know, if you're used to reading mysteries, you're used to reading thrillers, you're, you're making a mental list of each character as they come up and you know it's well it's not this guy it's this guy it's this guy it's this guy it's always somebody in that list unless you're making that flub that I mentioned at the beginning of, of all this you know being the debut author that just kind of throws in somebody from from left field um, it, it does need to be one of those characters and coming up with a, a way to do that the particular twist make it one of those characters you know that that still seems fresh is very difficult to do and, and you know she, she did it very well and, and Riley does too. Yeah, so I absolutely loved uh, loved Kimberly's book. It was a great guest. Really impressed with her with her writing chops and her physical prowess. So uh, wonderful interview, and uh, hopefully she'll come back again for another book. So JD, who is up next week? 
All right, next week uh, we've got Meg Gardner coming on, and she's going to talk about her collaboration with Michael Mann, Heat 2, um, which just debuted yesterday at number one on the New York Times list. So, Meg, if you're listening, congratulations. All right. That's going to be exciting. So if you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.